this is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev and I'm thrilled to bring you a special food and cooking themed episode where we chat with legends of the cooking world. First up, Mark Harding sits down with chef and TV personality Adam Lior to discuss his book, Tonight's Dinner. Then Mark sits down with Carla Lalali Music, author of That Sounds So Good. Check the show notes below for timestamps for both interviews, as well as links to all the books mentioned. Now over to Mark's interview with Adam Lior. I am thrilled to be here with a legend from the food world, uh, Adam Lior. Welcome to Booktopia. Thank you for having me. Um, And I'd like to begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to elders past and present. And I extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are watching today. Uh, So, Adam, your new book, uh, Tonight's Dinner, uh, is out and um, you have been having a very busy year with TV shows and putting out a cookbook. um, And uh, your philosophy around cooking that comes through in this book um, seems to be that it doesn't have to be difficult to be delicious and that it's an activity that you can fit into your schedule without it becoming an ordeal. And as somebody who's kind of ruled by a very strict schedule at the moment, um, how have you tried to bring that philosophy forth in tonight's dinner? Um, it's a philosophy I've had for a long time, but I think with tonight's dinner, it's the first time it's kind of really been thrust upon me. You know, I, I like cooking. I, I think a lot of people know that and I sometimes I get a bit nerdy about it but um, tonight's dinner is based on I guess my show on SBS The Cook Up and that's a show that is you know we, we've made so far we've made 300 episodes we're, we're, we're continuing to make even more um, and so we, we could do an awful lot of cooking on that show you know at least 300 recipes for me probably getting on four or five hundred when you, once you add in all the other things that we do um, and as part of the reality of, of that for TV, one of the rules at the very beginning when we were, when we were you know, sitting in the room before the cook-off even had a name, talking about how we we're going to make the show, one of the restrictions was, you know, Adam, everything that you make has to be done in sort of eight minutes. That's that's your time frame for getting everything done. And my first reaction was kind of incredulous. I was like, you know, I, I can't even boil spaghetti in eight minutes. What, what are we going to do? Like we can't make a cooking show where I can't literally can't make spaghetti. Um, but then, you know, obviously there's a little bit of magic of TV involved. You know, I can have some spaghetti boiling and then come to uh, an shop. But, but essentially, or I can put something in the oven and take out one that, that I've made earlier. But the the prep time, I guess if you were to break recipes into cook time, a lot of people worry about it. You know, people, don't, people don't mind putting things to a slow cooker and cooking for eight hours. It doesn't mean cooking for eight hours. It means that you spent three minutes cooking and, and the, the machine did the rest. So that restriction where I had to, my prep time for every dish that I made was about eight minutes uh, or less, kind of turned out to be the greatest blessing in disguise because it meant, you know, I was looking for ways to simplify every recipe, looking for ways to make it faster, make it more accessible. And that, and, you know, that doesn't mean cutting corners. It means just trying to do things a little bit smarter trying to make, you know, thinking about every ingredient that goes into a recipe saying, do I really need to spend the time chopping that? Or could I make this 
as delicious or more delicious by actually removing an ingredient. So we end up with these recipes that are kind of deceptively simple, but also I think very delicious. And, and um, so I sort of handpicked the ones that I think were best from the show and that's what's gone into tonight's dinner. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly happy with it because it, it's kind of taken the ego out of writing a cookbook. I think for people who love cooking, um, the process of writing a cookbook is like, you know, you, you want to show everything you can do. You want to, you want to kind of sum yourself up in, in one book. And, and this is kind of, uh, you know, it's written for people who might feel like they don't have the time to cook or might feel like cooking is a little bit complicated. I know that, you know, through lockdown and things that people have had, cooking people started cooking at the beginning and then as time wore on and it it, uh, it started to feel more like a chore and cooking can be a chore that's you know I'm not saying I love doing it every single day myself but um, I guess the book is like an it's an answer to a problem it's not trying to create more problems yeah it's interesting you mentioned that because we um, at booktopia uh, last year during um, the first kind of wave of lockdowns there were distinct trends that came through in what people were buying and cookbooks were like a really clear trend that lasted for for a good few months and like specifically baking books like really yeah. suddenly took off last year um yeah um you talk a little bit in the book about your relation about our relationship with food um what do you think most people's relationship with food is and what should it be you know, I, I think sometimes we can look at food as being a little bit like doing the laundry or a little bit like, um, uh, you know, doing the dishes or scrubbing the floors. Like it, it can feel like a chore, but in the same way that you can get joy from doing the laundry or get joy from doing things, you know, I, I feel like we almost made a rod for our own back with cooking. We feel like we have to make things more and more complicated. And the more complicated things get, the more time consuming things get, the less we like doing it. And we forget that cooking is really a conduit to some wonderful human experiences. You know, I was I was actually I, I had a, a chat with Hedy McKinnon the other day and she was say reflecting on her you know relationship with her mother and she was like, you know, all of my memories of my mother are from the kitchen. Like if I picture her, I picture her cooking or I picture her in the kitchen. And you know, I'm I'm a I'm a father. I have three kids, and I I think about my relationship with them and my own parents, and grandparents and things as well. And you know, so much of that happens around a family dinner table or a family breakfast table, um, or around a meal of some kind. And I just I don't think it's all that healthy to make your cooking so complicated and so laborious that you start to dread the thing that is actually at the core of, I think, a lot of families and a lot of our relationships with our closest people. So, you know, while it might be, you know, a, a book full of simple recipes, I think it's also kind of a tool to, to take the stress out of not just cooking, but out of that action that does have a really strong connection to our families and the people that we love. Who, uh, who taught you how to cook? Um, I guess it probably started with my grandma, uh, and then my mom, and then my dad, and then, you know, I moved to Japan, and I learned more there, and then, yeah, you know, cooking is, it's a constant process of learning, you know, I think I've been doing it professionally now for you know, 15 years-ish, and I, I cook very differently now to how I did two years ago, to how I did five years ago, to how I did 15 years ago, to how I did 20 years ago, to how I did 30 years ago, you know, there, there are so many um, I guess, 
conceptual things that change. You know, when you're talking about the nuts and bolts of how do you chop an onion or how do you do that, you know, that that probably came relatively early on. Mm-hmm. Although, to be entirely honest, I, did, I changed the way I chop an onion as recently as two weeks ago. <laughs> Just because I, I think the way that I do it now is better than it was three weeks ago. Um, yeah. How do you how do you chop an onion now? What's the what's the approach? Uh, I mean, so you, if you've got a round onion, I, I'm holding my phone with one hand, so I can't show you. So I usually will peel it and then cut it in half through the root. So you've got half an onion, and then if you want to finely dice it, people will cut vertically and then horizontally and then across. Mm-hmm. So you get the fine dice. But I think it's actually better to cut horizontally and then vertically and then into the dice because once you cut vertically, that horizontal slice can be a little bit scary because the onion kind of breaks apart as you slice horizontally. So I cut horizontally first while the onion is still intact and then do the vertical cuts, which are a lot easier. And I literally just changed that two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try that. Um, will, will it still make me cry? <laughs> uh, to be honest, not as much because by doing the thing with with onions is if, if you have a sharp knife the the, the onion the, the reason an onion makes you cry is because you're abusing the onion and it's a defense mechanism of the onion and it's trying to tell you like you know it, it is a plant it has a defense mechanism yeah. it's telling you to go away yeah. and so if you can get that onion chopped as quickly as possible with as least i guess physical attack on the onion as possible so using a sharp knife where the cuts are sharp rather than a blunt knife where the cuts are kind of mashing the defensive juices out of the onion it, it actually you know because i think the way i'm doing it now is slightly faster than the way i was doing it before because you don't have to really worry about cutting yourself as much as you did then yes incrementally i would say yes it does make you cry less. <laughs> <laughs> excellent um this isn't your first rodeo uh, in terms of writing a cookbook um how did you find the experience of putting tonight's dinner together uh this was um very different actually because it's a very different cookbook it's uh to the ones that i've done before not really in terms of the the recipes and things i mean they're a little bit different as well but i think probably primarily because um i guess the recipes came first and then the book came later i part of the process for me this is i think my seventh cookbook now um for the previous six it was very much have an idea for the book and then populate that idea with recipes and so you you know I, I don't think a cookbook should be um focused on the author it should be very much focused on the reader uh trying to solve a problem for them to to provide a solution to something that maybe they might struggle with in cooking um rather than just going here's all the food that i cook because you know i write hundreds of recipes a year um uh, so for tonight's dinner i guess because i were already written the recipes for the show and we knew that we wanted to make a book of it, it was about all of these recipes, sort of collating them and bringing them together in a way that I thought would be useful to people, you know, and, and that's why we ended up calling it Tonight's Dinner. It didn't have a name for the first couple of months of its of its writing. And then I started to pull out these these recipes and I was like, you know what, these are actually solving problems for people. These are these are the types of recipes that I would suggest to somebody if they came to me and said, you know, I, I I kind of, I feel a bit fed up with cooking. I would say, here, try these. And then that's kind of where it came from. And that can be your dinner tonight because mm-hmm. it will take you eight minutes and it's going to actually be very good. And maybe you might enjoy cooking again. I remember I, I saw you many years ago, I think after you'd done your first cookbook um, at an event and you were talking about um, 
how kind of involved and difficult the process of putting putting a cookbook together was. I remember you talking about like 12 hour days on set and you know all the photography that had to be done. Um, and I remember at the time it seemed like a bit of a grind. Has your relationship with um, creating cookbooks changed over the course of you know the six or seven that you've done now? Absolutely, it has. You know, it's the same. It's the same team that I've worked with now for years and years, um, and we kind of know what we're doing and we know um, what each other's are doing, and so. I remember for my first cookbook, we would probably photograph five or six dishes a day. Um, and for this one, we're so much more efficient. We were doing sort of 18 dishes a day um, and enjoying the process. But plus the recipes are a lot easier. So we were able to cook a lot more for the photography uh, for this. And, and um, you know, th there is a lot of storytelling that goes into the photography of a cookbook. You know, you, And it can be as simple as... If a dish is more simple, don't make it look complicated. If uh, you know, for a lot of my cookbooks, my, my, the one rule, rule that I've kind of had is no chopsticks, because I cook a lot of Asian food, and I think people, if they visually see a chopstick in a cookbook, they'll make a mental connection and say, "That's the thing that I can't cook because I don't really cook Asian food." Whereas I want people to appreciate a dish on its merits, and so I've kind of. I don't know if anyone's ever noticed, but there is, I think there's one photograph of chopsticks in one of my cookbooks that happened many years ago, just because I was not paying attention at the time. But I've kind of gotten rid of all the chopsticks from my flurry because I, I want people to look at it and go, I can make that, you know. And because the, the recipes in this book are simple, we were able to, I guess, cook more, we were able to cook faster, we were able to take more shots and also visually tell the story by presenting them very simply. If you look in the cookbook, you'll find you know, it won't look like you've, like some some of those, uh, of the cookbook that, that is about, you know, rustic country cooking can make it look like you've spent hours and hours in the kitchen trying to put something together. And that's part of the visual storytelling of that kind of book. But for this book where it's about, um, I guess, food being simple, the photography also bears that out. And you'll see that most of the photographs are one plate of food. Um, without too many props around it. Because subconsciously, I think if people look at a photograph that has a lot of plates and a lot of things in it, you can, if, if they do the dishes, subconsciously that they can think, you know, actually I'm gonna have to do a lot of washing up for that. And it doesn't correctly tell the story of a one pot dish if you're seeing six or seven pots in there. And it's, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, it was, it was a book with a very clear idea and a very clear message. And I guess, cause the team, uh, is a team that I've been working with together for a long time. We were able to execute that really efficiently. If there was one recipe from the book that you would want people to kind of go to and cook first, what would it be? <laughs> um, you know, it's never the one that I think, you know, that's one thing that I've noticed about cookbooks is, you know, you can think this, this one's going to be one that everyone loves. And, uh, you know, I'm not usually too wrong, but then they could, there's always like a like a dark horse that rises up and uh, that people absolutely love. So there's one um, uh, called Chicken Paprikash. And I've just noticed, like the book's only been out a week, but I've noticed, you know, dozens and dozens of people, that's been the first thing that they've cooked from the book. It's, it's I guess, you know, a cousin of beef stroganoff, uh, but made with chicken and pretty simply and no, uh, no, no mushrooms. And it's just a sort of a, a simple paprika, chicken uh, stew that's served with pasta. And I think um, it just looked accessible. And, and you know, I, I have to say, I've eaten it for dinner quite a few times. It's very tasty. 
and when we made it on the cookout, people absolutely loved it, and the the, the crew went home and made it um, <laughs> after that. And that for some reason, like that that um, that's that's a recipe that people have really, uh, I guess, embraced from the book, even in just the first week of seeing publication. Um, and my last question for you: We know a lot. Um through the years about how you cook, but what about how you shop? Is there an approach that you take to buying things at the, at the grocery store, at the markets that um, people should uh, should keep in mind when they're doing their shopping? Yeah, that, that's that's the ball game, to be honest. There's an old Chinese saying that 50% um, of the credit of a meal should go to the person who gathered the ingredients. And that's not, that's not even a farming reference. That's a, literally a shopping reference because um, the shopping is actually what makes a good meal and, and you know so I, I when i'm doing you know part part of my recipe writing process is my first stop quite obvious like uh quite honestly is my own instagram account <laughs> because that tends to just be because I, I i don't really uh i mean I, I will come up with concepts for recipes but if i go to the shops and you know the 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 vegetables the wrong size or the you know it might be a little bit small for what i'm thinking or the, the the cut of beef i'm looking for is not the highest quality that day in the shop i won't buy it and i will change what i'm doing and so that's why my what 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 i actually have for dinner um on instagram is what i'm actually having for dinner that night and it tends to have been informed by what i bought at the markets that day and and you know my wife also does uh, quite a lot of the shopping as well when i'm when i'm working and she's a very good uh food shopper and sometimes i go oh this is what we should have for dinner tonight and then she'll go out to buy that and she'll come home with completely different ingredients and you know, you know the uh the spinach didn't look good or something like that and then she'll buy something else and then i'll uh, you know change what i'm making uh, to suit the ingredients because I, I do i do think you've got to put the ingredients first you know if you if you um if you want to get that extra one percent or ten percent or twenty percent out of what you're making when something jumps out at you at the supermarket or at the grocers or wherever you know it's jumping out at you for a reason you, you, if you and if you're stuck there looking at your list going this is the only thing i'm buying today then you, you're probably missing some really good produce that uh is there you know and we do that all the time we might go to to, to the shops with a rough idea and come back with a completely different one just because the produce looked different back there. Fantastic. Well, Adam Leo, we don't want to take up much more of your time. Thank you so much for um, chatting with us today. Um, and uh, you can order a copy of tonight's dinner right now at booktopia.com.au. Thanks very much. Thanks, Adam. Now over to Mark's interview with Carla Valali Music. I am thrilled to be here with another legend of the cooking world. I'm joined by Carla Lally Music. Carla, welcome to Booktopia. Thank you so much. Very, very happy to be here. Um, so you are an award-winning cookbook author, chef, former food director of Bon Appetit. You anchored the hit YouTube series, Back to Back Chef, but you're here today to talk about your new book, That Sounds So Good. Mm -hmm. Um, so your book kind of has a bit of a philosophy around cooking that it doesn't have to be difficult to be delicious and that it's something that can like fit in as a weekday activity. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you think your philosophy on cooking comes from and how you're showcasing it in That Sounds So Good? 
Yeah, I would say it's definitely been an evolution for me. I think um, I've spent the first 10 years of my cooking career really in restaurants and the second half was in food media. And when I was a younger cook, I was overcomplicating everything because I wanted to cook at home the way I cooked in the restaurants. Um, And after sort of starting a family and um, moving away from professional cooking in that sense, started to really think about like how how did I want to spend my time and what is the purpose of like what why are we cooking what is the purpose of bringing people together and I really do it um, to feed other people and realizing that you know it can be very intimidating as far as like how much time is it going to take what ingredients do I need when am I going to do it how many pots and pans to clean up Um, And wanting to kind of remove as many of those hurdles as possible so that people can jump into it. You know, that was really the idea. Um, And you do start out the book with like a guide to utensils and pantry items to set you free. Um, Why did you choose to start the book there? And can you give us a little summary of of what pantry items do set you free? Yes. Um, I think that with a lot of cookbooks and people do this brilliantly all the time, the front section of a lot of cookbooks is about like basic equipment and basic ingredients. And I didn't feel like I was going to bring so much to that conversation by, you know, repeating it. So for me, it's about thinking about how to shop as really being the key to a lot of liberation as a home cook. So um, the pantry that sets you free is a well-stocked but not overflowing pantry And I believe in cooking, um, really shopping in person for like protein and produce, really good bread, maybe a a really nice cheese, like those things that matters if you go in person and you pick them out. Whereas um, the olive oil that you know that you like, the big bucks of salt, the various vinegars, bags of flour, those things are heavy. They're all the same. You don't bring any value to it when you shop it um, in person. And so those things, I am encouraging people to have them delivered through online services, things like that. Um, So that when you go shopping, you don't need to have a recipe in mind. You can just think about like, oh, what looks good today? What do I want? What makes me hungry? And then come home and you've got this pantry that is varied, that you have spices, you have condiments, you have seasonings. and you can just start cooking. Where did you learn to cook? Was it something that started out professionally as a cook or was it something from family prior to your career? Um, I My mom is an amazing cook, so I grew up in a house with great food. So I did not learn to cook until I left for college because the food was terrible. <laughs> yeah. And I think growing up, knowing what good food tastes like and understanding that food is can be something that you do from scratch like helped me more than the physical or the methods or the techniques like i just knew i really enjoyed food and i knew that it was something that you could make with your own hands so that was that was kind of what guided me what was the first meal that you kind of remember making and thinking hey this is something that i'm good at and i want to make this my career um oh make it my career um I think I mean I knew that I wanted to work in food and have it be my career as soon as I first stepped into a restaurant kitchen um the 
and I did not know what I was doing at all. You know, I was very green. Um, but the energy of it, the adrenaline, the kind of physicality, the instant gratification, you cook something, they take it out into the dining room and then they come back with an empty plate. Like I loved how that felt. But for me, um, I just cooked a lot of pasta in college. And um, one dish that I used to make was basically a version of um, cacio e pepe, you know, just like pecorino and pepper. But I would add um, green beans to it. And I like, ate, I mean, it was inexpensive and it was filling. So I ate a lot of that. And I remember telling my parents about the combination. And my dad said, like, Oh, you made a recipe like that's an original recipe. And I was like, really? So that was probably the first dish. Um, what was the experience of um, putting uh, that sounds so good together? Was it um, different experience to putting together um, your previous cookbook? Yes, definitely. I mean, one major difference was that the pandemic had hit when I started. So when I wrote the proposal and had the contract to write the second book, it was pre-pandemic and I spent a few months really working on the structure, um, the Monday through Thursday and the Friday and the weekend structure of the book and figuring out what each chapter was going to be about and what recipes belonged in each chapter. So I had a really great outline. Um, and then I had started working in earnest on the recipes and then the pandemic hit. So instead of having a really great work from home situation where my spouse was at work and my kids were at school. Um, everybody was home. So it was really hard. Um, but I think that it made the book and the recipes so much stronger because I was cooking so much and I was cooking dinner every single night and developing recipes during the day. And the, you know, just the really immediate can't get away from it problem of like pots and pans, dishes, bowls, spoons, getting, even getting ingredients was like not a guarantee. Um, so it, that part was very different. And I think I simplified the recipes as a result and really thought about like, if this ingredient doesn't change the dish in some way, or if you wouldn't miss it, if it was gone, then it doesn't, it like didn't earn a spot. Um, and then on top of that, we were supposed to start shooting it in March of 2020. Um, I had to delay that first shoot. And then we ended up, we were going to like use a location for the shoot. And that was really difficult because you couldn't bring people together. You couldn't. Yeah. So we ended up shooting the whole book in my house, um, which at the end also ended up being like really wonderful thing to be in my home environment to be able to pull from the things that I already own. Like it's my pots and pans and the shots and things like that. So uh, yeah, very different. In the first shoot, we were all living together under one roof, eating every meal together and shooting the book during the day. And that was not, <laughs> that was not an option. Which part of um, putting a cookbook together do you think is kind of the, the more creatively challenging? Is it coming up with the recipes or is it actually managing the logistics of, of the shoot? I mean, for me, more creative, the part that I really love is is the shoot being on set with everybody. And especially during the pandemic when I didn't have, you know, I was not working in person with any coworkers. 
So to come together with other people who have expertise in these various departments and share, you know, share a project together and share the creation of something like I love, I love that so much. And that's really fun for me. Um, it can be nerve wracking and it was hard, you know, doing it in my own home, but, um, the process of recipe development, when I can find a true creative kind of moment where, where I feel like I'm playing around with something where I'm not worried about like what the finish line looks like and kind of just experiment. Um, that's a great feeling, but more, it more feels like work, like, you're it's it's technical you're recording ingredients how many minutes how long did it take what size pan am i using what is the color of that like all of those things have you come across any um cooking ideas or experiences or techniques that are new uh to you that you've brought into this book mm. um i think that there's only so many ways to cook something. You know, I think that as far as cooking methods, it might be called something different depending on where in the world and what your cuisine is. But, you know, essentially you can categorize things from like wet, a wet heat method, like braising and steaming, dry heat methods, like roasting and pan roasting, sauteing, and then, you know, something in the middle of like where deep frying belongs. Um, there's just different, it's like time and temperature and like getting, getting, getting an ingredient cooked. I'm trying to think if there was something in particular in the book that I was inspired. I spent a lot more time grilling. I think the one of my favorite recipes in the book is the grilled um, squid with blackened tomatoes. And I didn't really know what I was setting out to do that day. I had written a recipe title and I like had no, I was like, I wonder what I was thinking about when I wrote that. Cause I have no idea. Um, and that morning I was kind of getting ready to cook and I flipped through um, Francis Mallman's seven fires book. And he had that, that technique for dry, basically charring a tomato that you've cut in half and just dry until it's like fully blackened. You didn't never turn it. And it, um, and I just decided to like experiment doing that myself that day and it worked out. Do you have like one favorite ingredient that you always turn to? Um, I've been told that I really love fennel seed. So um, it ends up in a lot of my recipes. And I, at one point was joking that like, were people gonna be annoyed at me that every recipe in the book starts with like, three tablespoons of olive oil and six cloves of garlic. <laughs> it's a grounding flavor for a lot of my meals. Mm -hmm. um, and if there was one, one recipe from this book that you would love to have people cook and, and to go out there and become like super popular, what would it be? I mean, that squid dish is my favorite. I don't expect it to be everybody's favorite. Um, let me think the, um, the pasta with the melted cauliflower sauce, I think embodies a lot of my philosophy and what I was doing in the book about teaching people about time, um, that a very humble ingredient can be very, very delicious. A lot of olive oil and garlic um, and, you know, seasonality that 
that dish is almost vegetarian. If you took out the anchovies, it would be vegetarian. Um, and the fact that like you can make a very delicious, deeply flavored anything um, through the transformation of like low, the low and the slow. So people who don't think they like cauliflower because it's cabbagey or it's sharp, when you cook it for a really long time, it completely transforms the flavor. So I love that part of the process too, sort of watch gradually watching something transform. So from working in kitchens and having this career in food media and writing cookbooks, um, you've done so much already in the world of food. Is there something that you haven't done that you really want to try? Um, I actually am really excited about the idea of traveling again. There's so many places that I've never been. Um, and some of my favorite foods like come from Asia specifically, like I love Korean food so much and I've never been. Um, so I'm hoping that, um, like to go to Thailand or Vietnam or Japan, like it's just definitely a goal and something that I think will inspire through new flavors or new flavor combinations um, and textures like that will give me a lot of energy as a cook. Cause so we get that from each other, you know, cooks are like very open and sharing food is about sharing. And I found that, that cooks and chefs in general, like love to tell you how they did something, you know? Um, and so learning through that experience of eating would be, something I really want to do. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today and congratulations on that sounds so good. Um, my you. last question for you, um, what are you cooking for dinner tonight? Oh, um, I'm not actually. So I'm, <laughs> I'm in Sonoma, California. I just got here and I'm doing a chef in residence with um, Scribe Winery. So I'm actually eating food that other people have cooked that are my recipes. So we're having the, um, the spiced pork ribs and sorry, I like celery and the radicchio salad from that sounds so good. Actually, what, what, one more question, actually. That yeah. is something I've always wanted to ask somebody who's written a cookbook. What is it like to um, eat a dish that you've created that somebody else has prepared? Are you like coming in for it like really critical or are you just like open and like whatever? No, whatever? Generally speaking, if someone else is cooking for me, I'm already like so <laughs> happy and excited. Um, it it depends obviously if I was invited over to like the house of one of my readers, I might be like, oh, <laughs> you know, sometimes I get tagged in photos where I'm like, okay, like, yep, we got it. We're doing it. Um, but in this scenario, these are professional cooks who have access to like really wonderful ingredients and to see recipes that I really wrote for home cooks through the lens of a professional cook um they make it like they make it look great they make it taste great it's such a treat for me it's really wild well thank you so much for your time today carlo we really appreciate it and um you can order that sounds so good right now at booktopia.com.au thanks for your time thank you have a great night you too <laughs>